I'm Noel Holtzman, and this is Open Concept from Yahoo Finance. I made this podcast to bring attention to the entrepreneurs and innovators in Canadian business. Natasha Kaufman is a big believer in the power of saying no, no to the wrong opportunities, and no to the wrong clients. She has built her 30-person PR firm with offices now in Toronto and New York on the back of a set of core beliefs. One is not focusing on the money. That means, among other things, don't take on a client whose values you don't share. Another is, don't grow just for the sake of growth. If being smaller means you can more fully control your fate and produce more compelling work, then smaller is better. There are others, but let me touch on just one more, maybe the most sacred. That is the importance of trusting your instincts. Whether you're a young person trying to navigate your next step, a new entrepreneur faced with some bet the company decisions, or just someone striving to find your way in the world, you have to listen to your gut. It's that determination to make the right call for her that led Natasha to pivot very early in her career. From journalism in New York to public relations in Toronto, and then from being a member of someone else's staff to running her own company. It's not about me or even the client. It's about what does the journalist actually care about? Hi, I'm Natasha Kaufman, and I'm the president of NKPR. This may be a little inside baseball, but Natasha realized something early on that might seem obvious, though is shockingly unique. If a big part of the success of your business is trying to get the media to cover your clients, it's critical to get to know the media. That doesn't mean whining and dining reporters, but it does mean doing your homework and understanding who covers what, and then tailoring your pitches accordingly. It sounds obvious, I know, but it isn't. Well, I was working in New York City at the time. I was freelancing and I was also working at HBO. And I just remember getting press releases across my desk. And I used to play this game with myself where I'd throw some out, I'd keep some, and I used to look at them. And the good ones I'd really pay attention to. And the ones that felt very self-serving, I would just throw out. So when I moved back to Toronto, there was an opportunity to be a writer, journalist at the Toronto Sun. And the other was to be the director of communications at Liberty Entertainment Group. And I took that job because I felt that's the job where I could actually create the stories. I actually had an opportunity to be strategic. This was a fateful decision, one that was clearly guided by Natasha's instincts. And anyone who has scanned her Instagram account and seen her fondness for the finer things in life will know that she definitely made the right call. When I first started out, one of the things I used to do is I'd read through the paper And I would just acknowledge, like, if a writer wrote something amazing, and I used to do this with Natalie Atkinson all the time because I love her work so much. So I would send her a note and just say, I really love what you just wrote. And it wasn't because I needed anything. It was just I wanted to acknowledge when someone wrote an amazing article. And so it's an opportunity for you to really sort of foster and forge this relationship with someone. And I just think that doesn't happen very much anymore. But in fairly short order, you... You created your own company. Mm -hmm. And was that an inevitability? Did you always know that you were going to run your own business? Or was it sort of a revelation when you were in the industry? Yeah, I didn't know. I think I always had this entrepreneurial spirit, but I didn't actually quite know what it was. It was just something inside me, but, you know, I couldn't pinpoint it at the time in my 20s. It wasn't until I worked for an agency and I had started their PR division that I realized I don't, there's some things I would do differently. You know, one of the things, for example, is when you're working for a large agency, you have to promote everything that's being put on your desk. Yeah. 
And I just felt I wanted to promote the things I was passionate about. I didn't want to have to promote accounting software if it was just something I didn't feel this connection to. And so that's when I left there and started my own, you know, it wasn't even a shop, truly. I started out of my basement. <laughs> my first client was Visa Canada, leveraging all of their film festival sponsorships across the country. And I kind of thought, you know what, I might just freelance for a while. It wasn't until about six months later that I received a call from CIBC, and they were a client of mine at the previous agency, and they had said, would you put together a press conference for us? We need it in three weeks. And that call came to me, it was December, I think, 23rd, like two days before, no, the day before Christmas Eve. We need a press conference in Montreal the first week of January. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I don't think I can do that. Because you're always second-guessing yourself, right? Of course, of course, yeah. And... I said, can I think about it? So I took some time, I mean time, it was an hour, I think. And I called them back and I'm like, absolutely, I can do that. And I worked through the entire holiday and I executed a really strategic press conference for them. And it was after that, that within the first six months after that, my agency became their agency of record for all of their sponsorship programs. So it gave, gave me the opportunity to hire more staff and or hire staff because really it was me and me at the yes, time. Yes. Um, and that's that decision really stuck with me all these years because now I know that when I have that feeling of fear and I'm afraid to say yes to something because I feel like I can't do it, I know that I have to work through the fear and I have to I have to do it. And so it was a really, really interesting lesson for me because it was at that moment that I actually had a business because I said yes. And I can see that it may seem a little less daunting because you started off, you know, very small and then you scaled up from there. But the idea that you have to meet a payroll every month, I would imagine that that would be very scary, right? That there's, it, you get to a point where these lives are dependent on you in terms of paying the rent and paying the bills. It's interesting. I never think about it like that. You don't that. think about it that way? I don't. Way. I think about mentoring my team. Okay. I think of, you know, helping them become, you know, great humans. I think about them becoming the best that they can at their craft. But I never actually think about the payroll. I built the business based on money coming in, money going out. And so it's just how we've grown and I guess it's just how the business has grown. And now we're like a staff of about 35, 40 people with offices in Toronto and New York City. But I just never think about it like that. And that's the way my mind works in the same way that I said, it's how I think about the people receiving the information as opposed to me sending it. So in the same way, I think, I don't think about making payroll. I think about how do I help them become great humans? Because the reason I ask, I had a friend who was also in the PR business and she said, you know, essentially, I I have to have at least $120,000 in, in billables to pay out every month, right? And and I thought, like, if you look at it from that perspective, yeah. right, it that money's got to come in every month. It does. It, you know what? It does, it and does. it does. And it does. You know, um, um, but I. But it's an interesting point. I was never driven by money. Yeah. So whether I had it or didn't have it, I just never thought of that being the bottom line. So when I started the agency. I really thought I want to pick and choose the products, the brands, the people that we work on and work with. That was what was driving me. I wanted to do great work. I didn't think, oh, I want to make sure I'm, I have a minimum retainer of $10,000 a month. And you do hear that from like, even like we'll interview people and they're like, I need to make this. And I'm like, 
I'm not sure you're right for us then because yeah. it should be about the experience you're going to get and the money comes after. And so I run my business in the same way. I continue to still pick and choose. Like there are some brands I don't want to work on, whether it's ethical for ethical reasons or it's just not something I'm passionate about. So it's never the dollar bill that actually motivates me ever. And once you've reached a certain size, I can see that you'd have the freedom and the luxury to be making those kinds of decisions. Now, at the beginning, were there particular clients, and you don't have to name them, of course, but that you just you said, no, I'm not going to be part of that? Yeah, I did. Because remember, my goal was never to build a business. Yeah. I was perfectly content sort of working in my basement, just got a new puppy. So I was like, this is great. Like, yeah. So that was never my motivation. In fact, now I still kind of think the business grew despite me because... I just never thought of it like that. I did pick and choose even in the early days where I just felt like, I remember specifically, and I won't name the account, it was a brand that came to me and I was just like, I don't feel a connection to this. And I just, because I'm an entrepreneur, I really value when someone spends a dollar with me, I want to make sure they get you know 30 back. And so I just thought their money would be better spent somewhere else where there'd be a different, a better connection. And I think that's really important. And, you know, I was just talking about this with a colleague where these two young girls came to my office last week. They're two young designers and they just launched this amazing collection of uh, products, this new brand that they're launching. And they went to a PR agency and they gave them the worst counsel, the worst. And then they came to me and they're like, what would you have done? And I told them what they really should have done to launch this. And I felt so bad for them because they work really hard for the money that they gave that agency. Yeah. And they didn't get the result that they needed. And we need to have honor. We need yes. to make sure that if we're taking something on, that we're going to deliver the results. And the results might not even be media coverage. The results might just be the right strategic counsel to help them build the foundation for their brand. And they didn't get that. And I think that's tragic. So that's why I do say no to things because I'm like, sometimes I'm just not the right person or our agency might not be the right fit because we might not be aligned on our values. We might not be aligned, you know, in other areas. We had a um, cigarette, I mean, they still have cigarette companies, believe it or not, that came to us and wanted us to pitch on a piece of business. And I was like, I don't want to do it. They're like, but it, you know, the budget's really high. I'm like, I just don't want to do it. Yeah. So you don't touch cigarette companies generally? No. And I don't want to ask you a question or raise an issue that I wouldn't ask anyone, mm -hmm. but I saw that you're a parent, you have a son, mm -hmm. and you had a son fairly young. And, and as a consequence, you had to succeed. I, I read that, that there was less of a plan B because of that, but that must have added a layer of stress or... That did. Yeah. <laughs> I had my son, I was 18. Yeah. Um, it added a layer of stress for sure, because I felt like there was no plan B, it had to be plan A. But I also think I don't think I'd be me today if it wasn't for him. Yeah. And that's because he was my compass to make good decisions. I couldn't afford to make bad decisions. It's not to say that I didn't make mistakes. Yeah, it's not course. to say that I didn't have plenty of key learnings. But because of him, I felt like I had to show good judgment all the time. I wanted to make sure that I was a human that he could be proud of. I wanted to make sure that I led by example. And... I do believe that helped me make good decisions. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting because I just got married recently and he gave a speech at the wedding and he said, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but, you know, not only did you lead by example, but you are the best example I could have had. 
And it made you made me feel like, wow, you know, I really, you don't even realize your child notices or pays attention to everything that you do, but they do. And so I just remember in my 20s where all my friends were, you know, partying or whatever they were doing. I didn't didn't do that. You know, I was working. I was in New York. I was with him. Like I just worked and hustled and learned as much as I possibly could learn. And that's why I, I to a lot of, you know, I mentor so many uh, young people because one of the pieces of advice that I give them is be patient with yourself in your 20s. Give yourself the opportunity to actually learn. Yes. Um, because I felt like in my 20s, I had this pressure to just know everything. The reality is, is if I would have just allowed myself to just learn, that pressure, I might not have felt as much pressure as I did. On the issue of sort of a, a transitions or evolutions, how has the industry changed for you or for, uh, from your perspective, PR, since you started the firm in 2002? Because like, I know on our, this side, everything has changed, right? Does it, yeah. does it feel the same extent? Oh, it's changed tremendously. First of all, email just started back then, yeah. right? Like I started yeah. my firm in 2002. Like we were just, this internet thing was just yes. popping up. I was still getting voicemails and uh, my receptionist would be leaving them with like little pink yeah. Um, yeah. note cards, right? So everything changed. But I think what was interesting about that is I was open to the evolution. So when you think about a lot of PR companies in particular, and I remember a few years ago sitting with a friend of mine that owns another one, and she said, I thought the social media thing would just go away. Yeah. I'm like, you can't think like that. You kind of have to be open to everything that is presented to you, everything that's out there, because you actually don't know what's going to stick. So for us, I'm more excited about our industry today than I was back then. Because back then, you only had so many tools in your toolbox, right? So we had media relations and we would engage the media. We had sponsorship programs that we would create to help build brand visibility now you have social media and you have, you know, just overall, you know, media engagement. So when I think about social, social actually is what, if done properly, that storytelling piece, it actually encourages purchase behavior depending on the product or the brand. Media or, you know, let's say whether it's media relations or whether it's advertorial or advertising, that's good from a brand credibility standpoint. So now you have this opportunity to actually do everything. So when I think about what we do for our clients now, I can pull out almost any tool in my toolbox. We create ad campaigns. We create storytelling opportunities, whether it's through social media or whether it's through traditional media. We're able to do work with influencers in a way, and I think that's a word that's overused quite a bit, but you can work with people that are authentically connected to the brand in a way that actually gets other people within their community super excited. So I feel for our industry, it's the most exciting time. Sort of the pre-social media age, the the PR person establishes a relationship with somebody in media, and then through the course of that relationship, coverage develops, you know, uh, potentially over a series of clients, right? And so kind of everyone understands the rules of engagement. But with social media, it seems to me, and and maybe maybe I'm wrong in this regard, but the variables are a lot harder to control. Well, they're harder to control for sure, but they're also, you might not even want to control them. I I think it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. What I don't like is that if you do a partnership, let's say with an influencer, with your product, 
the next day, they have zero loyalty to that. So we try and actually stay away from that. We look for what's, what we're calling micro-influencers. So I'd rather partner with someone that has maybe 300 followers or under 1,000 followers, but their followers actually care about what they're doing. That person's not an influencer per se. That person has a regular job. They just might, you know, and I'll use the example of Mountain Equipment Co-op, who's a client of ours. You want people that have that adventurous spirit and that actually shop at you know, MEC. So the people that follow them actually have the same level of interest. So that person isn't getting a paycheck or get, you're not paying that person to actually write about MEC or wear MEC or use MEC. That person's authentically already engaged with the brand. Those people are a lot harder to find. So for us as PR people, they're like finding needles in a haystack, but that's where I'd rather spend the time than go to the usual suspects that tend to actually just, they just, move around. They go from, they'll promote your product and then they'll promote a competitor's product two days later because for them, it's how they get paid. So I guess it kind of comes back to if money is the driver, that's never a good thing because I do think at the end of the day, you'll actually uh, be rewarded for doing authentic work or, or being authentically aligned with the brand than if you're just collecting a paycheck. I wonder if this is kind of the beginning of the end of the influencers. I, it's easy to be on my side of the table and to, to look at influencers and conclude like, it's just a scam, right? But this is the first time I've actually heard somebody, and you didn't say scam, but it, it express some real sort of concern concern around what's actually going on here. And yes, yeah, they've got 30, 50, 70, 100,000, but what does that actually translate into? I'm seeing more and more clients be more realistic about that. So, for example, if you look at if someone has 7 million followers and she's a blogger, she to me is like a model. Like, I get why a brand would want her to wear their things. I get why Dior might want to do a partnership with a specific you know, influencer that has 7 million followers because she's just a beautiful girl that wears clothes really well. And I kind of understand that. But if you're looking at, you know, on a local level – um, someone that has 10,000 followers, they're a blogger, they're just promoting different product. I'm not sure I get that connection. On the client side, what kind of deliverables or metrics are they looking for from you when when they're evaluating whether this was an effective relationship for them? It varies. It depends on the client. So some clients, it's still based on impressions, which is unfortunate because Impressions only will kind of tell you so much. I prefer, I actually will go to some clients and say, why don't we look at impression numbers as a gauge so it shows that your agency is doing something. But why don't we also look at, did sales increase on a specific product um, that we're actually promoting? I don't mind linking it back to sales because I feel that if we're creating an effective plan, then their sales should actually increase. So Sometimes we'll actually set KPIs uh, in respect to the sale of a specific product as well. But isn't there a number of then external dependencies in terms of other marketing initiatives that that creates a degree of uncertainty, doesn't it? It does for sure. So with some of our clients, we actually manage everything for them. Okay. So with some, we're their agency of record for their advertising, for their PR, for their marketing. And for some, we just do a small piece of it. So it is dependent on all of those things. But I just want to make sure that we're setting KPIs 
that are actually meaningful. Yeah. As opposed to setting KPIs that are based on, I want 100 million, you know, I mean, 100 million impressions isn't necessarily that many to get, but, you know, they want 500 million or billion impressions. Okay. <laughs> so there's some things that we can do that will get you there, but it won't actually impact your business in the way that you think. So let's actually start with, and you know, it's one of the ways I like to work is let's think about what does success actually look like? If you took impression numbers off the table, yeah. if you actually looked at what is success, what do you expect from this particular launch in respect to like what would make it successful? What would you deem success as? Is it, you know, selling out of it completely? Is it you want to evolve brand perception? What is it that you want to do? And if we can identify what that is, then we can kind of work backwards to create a program that can actually help deliver that. I do think PR can help you do that. I think that we have enough tools in our toolbox that we can actually affect that. Coming up, anxiety and instincts. Trusting your gut is a great principle, but how do you really know if you're on the right path? What advice do you give the people you're mentoring in the, about the realm of like making mistakes? Because I th- we both know that you learn typically much more from a mistake than from a success, right? And yet at the same time, it can be painful, it can be damaging. I mean, it depends on what the mistake is. But how do you how do you sort of navigate either younger staff or just the people you're mentoring on the issue of mistakes? So I never look at mistakes as mistakes. I actually always look at them as key learnings um, because I agree with you 100%. You learn from those opportunities and from, from those experiences the most. It's actually when you feel like you've made your worst, let's say, mistake or you have had your biggest key learning that you grow the most. Um, so I... I embrace that. And as I'm mentoring people and they're asking questions about their career and they're always very nervous about what they should and shouldn't do, I'm like, you just have to do something. You just have to take a step forward. It might be a good decision. It might be a bad decision, but ultimately it'll lead lead you to where you're supposed to go. And I, I think that a lot of young people are really anxious and that anxiety almost debilitates them from making decisions. So I think the biggest thing we can do is encourage people to just make a decision um, so that it just leads them forward. I don't think you can ever really make mistakes. And I think that everything is just one big key learning. You learn, you know, whether it's your personal life or your professional life, you know, you're never going to have the perfect relationship either. You just have to kind of try it and see how it goes because you learn something about yourself regardless. And the issue of trusting your, your instincts, and I know this is an important one for you. How do you get people to do that or convince people to do that? Uh, you know, I, I'm a parent of, a, of a, a daughter who is almost 18, and both myself and her mother always say, trust your instincts. But it's, it's one thing to say, but when you're 17 or 18, you don't know necessarily that your instincts are right. No, you think it's like you just have a sore stomach. Like yes. You're not sure what it is. Completely. Yeah. No, it's true. It takes time. It, yeah. Your body really does speak to you. And so, you know, when your 18-year-old is feeling that sort of anxious feeling, sometimes that anxiety is actually telling her to make that decision or or, or not make that decision. Yeah. But it is your body speaking to you. You have to listen to that. It's guiding you. I really believe that. It's just we don't know that it's a it's a it's your gut speaking until you're a little bit older, but it does feel like a sore stomach. <laughs> like it's, yeah. Although I can see, though, you know, with these conversations that we frequently have, and I'm sure you had when your son was 18, everything 
can invoke anxiety, right? So it's not like, okay, that's clearly the wrong choice, but this is the right one. It looks like an array of confusion sometimes, right? For sure. Sometimes they have to, you know, I always say this, what goes up goes down and what goes down goes up. What we know as adults is that when you're down, you don't stay down there very long. It goes up very quickly. They don't have that experience yet. So when they're in that down, they just think, oh my God, life is never going to get any better. So we need to help them along to help them understand that in a month's time or in three months' time or a year's time, this is where your life is going to be. So just ride it out. That's what makes them anxious. They feel like I I, I was having lunch with my 16-year-old niece and she was just feeling like, what if I don't get into the right university? What if I'm not, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get the, be in the career that I want. Like it was all this negativity. I'm like, forget about all that. Just, you know, what, what do you have going on in the next three weeks? What do you have going on tomorrow? Yeah. You know, they need to um, pull themselves out of that negative space because they're here. They need to pull themselves themselves up. Um, and they just don't have that experience to know that there's a light at the end of that, at the, the end of that tunnel. Do you think it's different today than when you were? Yeah, I do. And even okay. though, I, and, I, and I had a child so young, I do. I think I had it easier. I think there's so much pressure on these kids right now. And a lot of it is social media. Yeah. So I'm able to use social, social media in a way that it really helps my business. And I enjoy, you know, having access to the world in that way. Young people, they use that as a guide of what their life is supposed to be. That's not right. So they they go down this rabbit hole. First of all, they could spend eight hours on social media and they're not focusing on themselves. They're looking at everyone else that makes them feel bad about themselves. Yeah. And I think that's a huge problem. And I worry about that because look at that's eight hours they could have spent on themselves, making themselves look better, feel better, do, you know, exercise, whatever it is, um, but they're not. And so, I mean, I didn't have that. I just had to worry about me and my son, you know, you know, creating a life for ourselves. If I was busy with social media, I wouldn't be spending any time on that. So they're taking away time from building themselves. So how do you then how do you sort of counsel people in terms of the management of social media? I, I completely agree with everything you say. But it is a it is a question mark, right? In terms of this is vital in terms of knowing what your friends are doing and and what's going on in the world in many respects. And yet at the same time, it's a big problem. I wish there was, and I don't know, maybe this already exists, but I wish that there was a course in school to teach kids about the rules and regulations of social media and the good and the bad and and the ugly. My son, when he entered law school, for example, he went off of Facebook for a year because he said it was making him feel really bad about himself because yeah. all of his friends had finished their undergrad and they were working. And here he is back at like school and yeah. just feeling really badly. And so he went off of it and it was the best thing that he could have done. So I just wish that in high school, maybe even younger than that, there was a course that could be taught so that kids knew how to get the best out of it and also knew how unreal it is. And I actually wish that there was a time limit that they could be on social media per day, especially at such a young age. No, I I completely agree with that. And I don't, there isn't a course, at least not in the public schools. But I'd be somewhat remiss if I didn't bring this up, that that there's kind of an incongruity to what you're saying. And then, but your life on Instagram looks pretty fabulous, right? (laughs) 
Because somebody could look at your life on Instagram and think like, wow, like that looks pretty awesome. And and not to suggest that you are responsible for contributing towards anyone else's misery. I'm not suggesting that. But that's one of the challenges though, right? But I always do talk about, you know, one of the things I do make clear on social media is the hard work that it took to kind of to get here. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. I do mentor a lot because I do think that it's a tough time for people, whether you're a young person or whether you're just sort of not certain about where you are with your uh, with your career. I mean, will I take, you know, 30 photos and choose the best one? Absolutely, I will. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm also pretty honest about that as well. Like my Instagram, which is also, you know, our and KPR Instagram, yeah. and I've made that decision very early on to make it one of the same because it is my name on the door, is it's authentic to sort of who we are as a company and who I am as a person. So we'll always talk about cause and giving back and because that's such a big part of, you know, who we are and who I am. We talk about our clients because we want to showcase what our clients do. I love fashion, so I'll always post a little yeah. bit of fashion in there. You know, we also will always do a POV. So what's happening in the world? What's our point of view on that? So that we can make sure that the people that do follow us understand what our values are. And that's kind of, you know, what we post about. Are they nice pictures? Yeah, they are. But at the same time, what I'm hoping for is are the young people that want to get into our industry that they also know I'm accessible. I respond to so many DMs where people want to be mentored. And yeah. I mean, I mentor people from all over the world because of that. So I always want to make sure that I'm fully accessible and there to answer any questions that they might have about the industry or um, sort of any choices or decisions that they, they need to make. And that's really, really important for me. Yeah, and that wasn't meant to be an indictment at, no, at no, all. No. I get but it. I, but I, you know, we all do this in terms of like, oh, this, I'm really happy right now, or this is a moment of great pride or satisfaction, or this is a great view or something, and then you capture it. But then I find when I'm when I'm looking at it, I, I'm forever deleting and then adding it back on. Because <laughs> then the difficulty is that you delete it and then you have no idea what, going on among your friends, right? Like, oh, I didn't know you were in Japan, right? Well, I posted 15 photos. Well, I, you know, it, it, so you kind of swing back and forth, at least I do. Well, I used to post a lot of, I mean, I still post a lot of quotes because I really like them, even though I get a lot of slack at the office about them. Do but you really? Yeah, I do. I love them. But so I use quotes as a way where I'm fe if I'm feeling a bit down or sad, I'll post a quote about that. And it's just a way of kind of sharing that, you know what, I, I'm like, we're all human. And so sometimes we go through ups and sometimes yeah. we go through downs. And that's a way to be able to share, but not to actually overshare. Yeah. One of your, your quotes was about the importance of empathy. Mm. And I find that, you know, as a leader, as a manager of people, it's an, an incredibly important quality to have. I don't, I don't think you can lead people without a degree of empathy, but it's also very challenging be, because what made you who you are was, yeah, there's circumstance, but there's also this burning drive, right? And not everyone possesses it. So how do you balance what your expectation of others and your team and and there's real deliverables here and at the same time being sort of empathetic to where everybody is at. I think empathetic leadership is really important. It doesn't mean that 
your expectations actually of different people should be different. Um, What I look at is everyone is an individual and everyone has strengths in some areas and not strengths in others. So to me, empathetic leadership is about really getting to know the people that you work with so that you can determine what are they really good at? What are the areas they're not so good at so that you can actually work with them to help them be the best that they can be? Not necessarily the best that you expect them to be, but it's based on their own growth and their own sort of capability and ability. Uh, And I think that's really important because, again, it's not about me. It's about sort of bringing out the best in the people that work with you. And I think that's really important. So we'll create roles for people in the office that might not actually exist, but because we see that they're excelling in a certain area, we'll create that opportunity for them so they can continue to excel in that specific area. I think that's empathetic leadership because you're getting to know the person what they're actually good at, as opposed to pigeonholing them into an area that you might need a digital person, but that's just not their strength. Yeah. And that's okay because if you put them in that role, they won't succeed and you didn't do yourself any favors and you didn't do them any favors. So I think it's really key to get to know the people that you're working with and understand what motivates them, what drives them, and what where do they actually want to be and really hone in on that skill set and teach them and nurture that. Slightly away from the office, one of Natasha's key passions is an organization called Artists for Peace and Justice, APJ. It was created in 2009 by filmmaker Paul Haggis as a way to help children and families within the poorest communities of Haiti. Natasha is the Canadian chair of the board for APJ, and its mission is now a key part of her firm's focus. It was probably going back 11 years now, and I remember being in Los Angeles, and I had lunch with Paul Haggis, and he had just come back from a philanthropic trip to Haiti. And he was talking about how he had met this incredible man, Father Rick Frechette. And if you don't know the story about Father Rick, it's it's incredible. This man is a priest, went to Haiti 30 years ago, and realized very quickly that Haiti doesn't need a priest. Haiti needs a doctor. He was burying babies because they were dying of malnutrition. And if you know where Haiti is, it's just an hour and 20 minutes away from Miami where people are, you know, partying in South Beach. So he went to New York, where he was originally from, got his medical degree, and then went back to Haiti. So he's lived there ever since. And Paul was telling me about this incredible human that he met and how the people of Haiti live on a dollar a day. A family might live on a dollar a day, but they have this incredible spirit. And he was explaining it, and I kind of thought, hmm, really? Like, I couldn't, I, I didn't fully understand it because I've never been there. But I said, wow, like, I, I'd i love to feel what Father Rick felt to actually compel him to go back to yes. New York, get yes. his uh, medical degree, and then come back to Haiti. I was like, I wanted to feel that. So I said to Paul, I said, well, why don't we do a fundraiser? And so I learned as much as I could about Haiti. Uh, We did our very first fundraiser at the Toronto Film Festival. We're actually celebrating our 10-year anniversary. And I remember at that time, and I still hadn't been to Haiti then, how like half the media people didn't even know where Haiti was. It was just not on their radar, yet kids are still dying of malnutrition. It's too close for us not to care. So we could barely raise, I remember that day, $40,000. Well, fast forward 10 years, I've been back to Haiti many, many times. We've helped raise, I 
think almost $30 million. We built the very first free high school in Port-au-Prince because they didn't have free education beyond junior high school. And I remember, remember my very first time going to Haiti and knowing exactly what Paul meant about the people. And I guess for me, the connection is people that have so little but can still appreciate family, can still have smiles on their faces, can still sort of live their best life on still a dollar a day, I felt this incredible connection. And I felt that we need to do more. We need to help. And so that kind of became this cause that I feel incredibly connected to. And when I went back and celebrated our very first graduating class, I guess three years ago now, I cried the entire time because these kids would never have had an education had we not stepped in and built this high school. And so I feel this tremendous responsibility to honoring that. And that's why we do what we do. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much for coming in. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. That was Natasha Kaufman, president of NKPR. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening app. Drop us a review or let us know a disruptive Canadian business leader who you'd like to hear from. I'm Noel Halsman. You can reach me at nhalsman at oath.com or find me on Twitter at ng Halsman. This show was produced by Stephanie Werner. See you next week.